0: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. PDW, Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
0: 18. Plus.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for July 19th, 2018, the double negative edition. We are live in front of a rowdy crowd <laughs> at the Keswick Theater in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Just north of the city of Philadelphia. Oh. I'm David Plotz. You know how
3: to make noise in Philadelphia.
2: You do, you sure you know, do. know, that's the
1: kind of enthusiasm that wins you Super Bowls.
2: <laughs> A lot of pandering already. That uh, I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my left is favorite daughter of the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia, Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine. And to Emily's left is John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. When I said I would hate to do a show in Pennsylvania, I meant I would not hate to do a show in Pennsylvania. Um, So this is, we're in the city of brotherly love, but in fact it's sisterly love here because we have both a Bazelon sister and a Dickerson sister in the house tonight, which is great. This is
3: like family night, live show family night.
2: On this week's GabFest, the bizarre and catastrophic spectacle of the American president kowtowing and toadying to Vladimir Putin in Helsinki and disavowing his own country's intelligence work. Will it have any consequence Then the indictment of 12 Russian agents plus a curious, gun-loving Russian spy has put more pep in the step of the Mueller investigation. We'll talk about that. And then the 2020 presidential campaign seems to have gotten started this week. Who are the front-runners, the side-runners, who are the dark horses? And of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. In a Trump era of, of... Horrifying and pathbreaking misbehavior. I have now I feel like I've identified five events that are extraordinary, even by Trump standards. So there was the grab them by the pussy moment in October 2016, because that was the moment when his his most debased private behavior was made evident and was then excused. The second was his firing of James Comey to stop the Russia investigation, or perhaps to stop the Russia investigation, which revealed that he would turn government inside out to stop any restraint on him. The third was his good people on both sides moment after Charlottesville, which exposed overt and shocking racism that was surprising. The fourth was the separation of of migrant families, which revealed a willingness to commit unspeakable cruelty in the name of political gain. And now the press conference with Vladimir Putin, I think, is the fifth one of these. He's accepted... President Putin's denials of Russian election meddling. He denigrated American intelligence agencies. He slavishly took the Russian president's side in every way that mattered. So that is what happened early in the week. So the question, John, is... This was denounced initially even by his dearest allies. Even Newt Gingrich denounced what what President Trump had done. And yet, we kind of know... That nothing will change. Or We're already the, at nothing will change. Um, I don't know. I'm setting you up, dude.
3: Tell us something well, will change. The, be well, no, eager can't. To hear I,
2: that. I th- shouldn't we chew
1: over what actually happened a little before we get to the nothing will change? Because so much has changed since this happened, including all the president's positions. Um, so, so it, just on that narrow point, so there, yesterday there was the press conference at which he talked about would versus wouldn't. Um, So the idea was that he said, um, uh, in talking about this question of meddling in the election, or interfering, I should say, not meddling, meddling's too benign a word. Um, So uh, he said, I don't see any reason why it would be, which is to say why Russia would, would, would be involved in interfering in the election. He said he meant wouldn't. So that was yesterday. Then Let's see, how do we, care? can we follow all the different balls bouncing? He was asked in a in a, press, a momentary press spray today, whether he believed not just about the past, but Russian interference ongoing, which the... Is
3: Russian still targeting the United States its Which the
1: Director still? of National Intelligence says is still going on, which uh, his CIA says is still going on, which a uh, senior uh, administration official I talked to said he gets... Intelligence briefings at the highest level every day about what the Russians are doing and the president said no It's not still going on. He then amended that through his press secretary and then in an interview with Jeff Glore on the CBS evening news tonight He said yes It's still going on and it better not continue and he said he told Putin in their private meeting uh, That he better knock it off um,
3: First so we've heard of that. That's, right? that's not something that. that they had brought out or emphasized or right. given In any Right. In his
1: previous previously. two interviews because he's done interviews with Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson um, and uh, and also it's obviously something he didn't bring up at the press conference itself. So, I think that I think that accounts for all the things he's said since the press conference. Um, but I think we should talk about the press conference itself and about the, before we get to the weather it will um, whether anything will change. So
3: here's a question I have about the press conference. So I like your list. This is the first international incident on your list, though I also think that we should probably fold in NATO earlier this week and um, and G7, too, the sort of sense that Trump on the international stage is shaming the country and, scrambling who our allies and our adversaries are. So for me, there's something in, in some ways more unsettling about having him do these large, florid moves outside the country, because it feels like whatever he does inside the country is like our family fight we're having. This is not our family anymore. It's like the big world stage. And, and other countries are going to change their behavior, change how they rely on the United States, change lots of um, aspects of their economic and military thinking because of what the United States presidents say? Or will they? Um, or are we looking at a moment in which what Trump said was you know, upsetting and denigrating and problematic, but he didn't do the bad policy things that some Russia experts were worried about. He didn't tell Russia it was all fine that Russia invaded Crimea. He didn't talk about inviting Russia back into the G7. So there's this way in which I still struggle with Trump's words versus deeds. And while I don't believe in any of the amending that went on this week, I mean, it seemed like he said what he believes at that press conference. That seemed very from the heart, not to mention later that night on Fox. It does just make me wonder how much we should care about these words, even on the international stage, even though part of me thinks that's like crazy when the American president goes and has a press conference with the president of Russia in Helsinki at a summit. That's one moment where words should matter, right?
1: Yeah, um, it is. I think... but, I, but I'm a huge fan of your underlying point, which is that um, we want to measure, if you look at what the U.S. policy is relative to the Russians, um, and we talked about this on the show last week, um, there's a lot of tough action being taken against the Russians, kicking out diplomats, giving stingers to the Ukrainians, um, uh, supporting NATO, asking for NATO to raise more money, increasing the U.S. budget, defense budget, all of which is militaristic activity the Russians can't possibly like. So there is activity, moving troops um, or adding military assistance to onto the Russian border. So, But I think the actions here, there's a, a couple of ways in which they're a challenge. First of all, in, in these summits having spent a lot of time thinking about Khrushchev and Kennedy in Vienna in 1961, Kennedy goes and basically gets his hat handed to him. He just gets, he, um, it's a disaster. And it's so bad that a future diplomat who was in the Kennedy administration who teaches a course on what happened at Vienna um, entitles the course, Little Boy Blue Meets Al Capone. Um, Jack Kennedy was the little boy blue, Al Capone was Nikita Khrushchev. The argument that people make about Vienna is that Kennedy got so badly beaten that he then has to respond and essentially Vietnam is the response. There's this global ideological struggle. He is caught up with this idea of US prestige and to to make up for getting beaten in Vienna, he has to be stronger and tougher in other places in the global ideological fight uh, between the communism and capitalism and it leads him to be more aggressive in Vietnam than he would have been. It's a theory, there are a lot of people who believe in it, but the idea is that these things don't happen just in the two days in Helsinki. That they create these reverberations. So the president tonight has said much more uh, tougher language about Putin. That may change. It may, be, it may have changed by now. Um, but the, to the extent that things reverberate and the extent that prestige gets wrapped up in this, and this is a president who said that if he had been president, Putin never would have gone into Crimea. So he's very invested in this idea of strength. Um, And that's why this question of if there's an attack going on right now, I think you can make a case that it's more of an attack against America when you directly attack America through cyber espionage than when you move into Crimea in terms of a response an American president should give. So that's just one way in which I think this does. I think there are other ways, too, but I've been going on too long.
2: But, I mean, Emily, I think it's your notion that that there... That this really is only words. I, I do think on Crimea and and on uh, Syria, he hasn't, doesn't seem to have given away the store. But if you think about all these trade sanctions on Europe, that is a way, and, and in fact, the, t- the denigration of NATO and the denigration of the EU and the pushing for hard Brexit, all of those are things which absolutely advance the Russia project, which is to undermine... The West. The West and undermine the Atlantic Alliance. And And... Trump has pursued those deeds very vigorously and and with great success in his eyes. We also
1: don't know what he did or didn't do because there were only the two of them and their two translators. So we don't know. He could have been tough as hell or he could have said Crimea, it's yours. We, we, we actually don't know. Um, and, uh, I think, and do you
3: think we will know? I mean, that also well, I feel I, weird about. Like, they the, spent that two hours together, and we're going to find out what exactly about it.
1: Well, it depends. The Khrushchev-Kennedy transcripts didn't come out until 1990 or 93. That's so, a long wait. So, <laughs> so that's not good. But um, things get pretty leaky these days. So... Um, uh, and you never know well, the, Russians might the, Rus- the Russians Putin might leak it. The Russians might, you know, the Russians might very well leak it. But um, but to your point, David, about the Russian project, is to basically say that the West and democracy and all of these liberal ideas America has been trying to force on you, the rest of the globe, it's all hypocrisy, and there is no moral superiority of the West. And so when the American president says. Um, about both his intelligence agents and the Russians, he says, "I have confidence in both parties." Then, when he's directly asked what did Russia do wrong, and he said both sides have done things wrong, that is, that's that is. And when he tweets something about the witch hunt in America getting in the way of Russia relations, and the Russian government retweets it, that that is, I think, supports David's argument that this is helping with the with the Russian project. I so. really
3: love the, the, sorry, the contrast to Putin said something like, don't believe it no one tells the truth, right? So it was sort of the reverse of Trump, where you can't trust either of us. He's looking out for America's interests, maybe. I'm looking out for the Russian Federation's interests. There is no, right? So, but they're, they're both equi- making equivalences. It's right. just Putin's is the you know, grimmer,
1: sober. And Putin's fine for equivalence. We're the, you know, cause he's, he's getting he the upgrade. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, one of the other things I think that was missed and the, what's interesting about this is because when I've talked to the president, he's talked about wanting to be a cheerleader for America. Um, and he is a marketer for sure,
2: who's been successful. Is he sure he wasn't assault a cheerleader for America.
1: He wants, what's that?
2: Grope a cheerleader for America
1: um the not what I uh, think of him you know he wants to he wants to change the colors of air force 1 to red white and blue what happens That's at a summit so like important.
3: this i'm really glad he's thinking about that
1: what happens <laughs> what happens at a summit like this is the american president has a chance with the entire world watching somebody was watching the french celebration of the world cup and even french television switched to helsinki for the press conference The entire world is watching. And if he wanted to not talk about, you know, he doesn't want to challenge the Russian president in person on TV about uh, interfering in the election, okay, that's fine. But he knows he's going to get blowback. And in these moments, an American president can talk about American exceptionalism and the you know, why we have free and fair elections and why his election against somebody who, who you know, he was a person nobody ever thought would get elected, but he was the voice of a, of a people who felt they'd been shut out of the democratic process, and in America we have open elections, not like you do in Russia, you know, I hate the press but they're allowed to ask their questions and they don't get killed the way they do in Russia he could have done all of that and sort of sung the song of America it would have cost him nothing, it would have been Uh, a cheerleading of America, and it would have at least given some counterbalance to the inevitable criticism, which then came even from his own side, who said... Here you were with the Russian president suggesting there was a moral equivalence between uh, our countries, and that's not something we expect from an American president on the world stage. So
3: the script you just laid out seems inconceivable to me, coming from Trump. That idea, because it would be critical of Russia. I mean, I think he's a person who doesn't like to criticize other people in front of them. There's a... Well, right. Yeah. that's to start with. Sure. But also I don't think he sees American exceptionalism in those terms. I think he sees his own election as about himself, not the virtues of our system, and that his admiration for Putin, whatever its source, is overweening. Yeah, like,
0: so I think So there's
2: there was a, a very interesting Ross Douthat column, typically clear-headed Ross Douthat column today. That was not ironic, that was dead serious. Ross is an incredibly clear, smart person. Uh, and he said there are three theories that you can entertain about Trump's behavior. One, the first one is that he genuinely admires Putin and also, and sort of the common, it's, it's the most innocent explanation. He admires Putin, he admires strongmen, and he just, he's, because he's such a defensive, insecure person, he cannot stand any possible. Implication that, that his election was not legitimate and therefore he bristles and and just can't contemplate it and that's what caused him to behave this way. That's theory one. Theory two is there's an actual act of collusion that's been going on that that uh, back to the election and Trump doesn't want to admit that but knows that it's the case. And the third is, or a collusion by some people involved in Trump world. And the third is that Trump himself is a Russian mole, he's a Russian plant who's been worked over. And... And I think Ross has sort of says it's like, you know, the vast majority of truth is like most likely is the first theory. There's some possibility of the second and there's an infinitesimally possibility of the third. Emily, is, did did you come out of this thinking, man, this is Trump really trying to cover something up? Or do you think that this is just Trump is so insecure that he has to act this way?
3: I mean, I feel agnostic about this and I think it's important not to jump to conclusions. So I started the week feeling like, feeling that there was more plausibility to the third unspeakable, unthinkable option than I had thought before, feeling deeply unsettled by that, and then deciding that it was important to wait for the facts to catch up. Since it's such a haunting, huge accusation, I am not ready to level it without more evidence. But I, what is so um, odd, I mean, it's entirely right, possible that this is, ego driven and about his insecurity about the election and it was interesting to realize more than I had before that if he concedes that the Russians interfered and actually like helped determine the course of the election that that is a problem right I mean I have been thinking all along like well you're the president and that's how it goes and so just admit it and move on but I actually think Maybe because he's had so much trouble admitting it, that now it is questioning the whole presidency in a larger way, and that actually, like, that's something he's right to be concerned about. Um, anyway. Wait,
1: I, I, lo- I, you I lost me. you at the, yeah.
3: Well, that, that if it's, simp- if it's the, forget the problem of how much the campaign helped and yeah. spurred this along. that. If he, ad- if Trump admits that the Russians had a material effect on the election and could have determined the outcome,
1: then it does materially undermine his presidency. Yeah, well,
2: um, but don't you? I mean, there's an original. If he had simply admitted that, if he simply said this back in December 2016, he'd, there'd be no problem. He could have gotten past it. He would have said, "We're going to do a vigorous investigation. We're going to harden our systems. We're going to investigate what Facebook is doing." And well, that would, and have, also that would have, have, have. This thing would have gone.
1: Well, right, I,
3: and that's the alternative path. It's the sort of open-hearted presidency in which it's a big tent. I welcome Hillary supporters. I know this was a close election. I want to be everyone's president. I mean, this is like, it just.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> Remember that idea. You were
1: accusing me earlier of saying things that were implausible. <laughs> No that's a, that's a, that was a cheap joke. Um, no, it was no true. that oh. was the promise, and in fact, it could anyway, it we could don't need to go to a um, couple of other things before we move on, because I, I feel like we're about to. Um, we've talked about this idea that Ross and a lot of people have written about the, the fact that really what this was was the president just cannot separate the idea of collusion from Russian interference, that anytime he hears somebody talk about Russian interference, he thinks they're challenging the legitimacy of his presidency, so that feels. That feels right, but um, the thing about that is, and we talk a lot about habits of mind of presidents, so one of the key, if not maybe you could argue, the key challenge in a presidency is you basically have to learn to sublimate your wishes and desires in most cases to... Either the greater good of the country, the greater good of the moment, the wisdom of your staff who's had a chance to go and figure all this stuff out because you're a president and you're awfully busy and you can't go figure it all out. And that that sense of restraint and self-control is one that presidents always wrestle with. And so to the extent that you have it or don't have it on specific issues of crucial national importance, that's a challenge, a big challenge for a presidency. And so this... Diagnosis is more than just what was happening in the moment. It's a challenge to all of the, his decision-making when he comes up against somebody who says you must do something else and he wants to do what he wants to do. That's a problem for all presidents, but it seems to be particularly acute for him, and that's, that's, a, that's a real problem in presidencies. The other thing that I think we should take note of is the ex- explanation about how he misspoke. Is not, it's not plausible if you look at what he said. No. Um,
2: no. Yeah.
1: And I just, I think it bears just a tiny minute of looking at what he actually said. It's hard to do without putting the words on the screen. But when when he was speaking, he said um, that, uh, I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. So it would be um, why basically the Russians would interfere in the election. But then he goes on, talks about the server, and then he says, I have confidence in both parties. So he amended that to say, what he really meant is, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. Which is to say, sure, it's basically, I accept the idea the Russians were involved in the election interference. So if that's his baseline position and he merely misspoke, why then would he say, I have confidence in both parties? If it's his baseline view that the Russians interfered in the election, then the guy he just met with for two hours lied to his face. If your baseline assumption is Al Capone is going to rob banks, and then every cop in the city tells you Al Capone has robbed the bank, and, and then you, then you say, meet Al Capone and you say, "You know, you're a bank robber," and Al Capone says, "No, I'm not." Your response shouldn't be, "I have confidence yeah. in you and the cops."
2: Yeah. That's that was an A plus analogy, John. Yeah,
4: that was good. That was really good.
1: That was the second Al Capone, and I didn't know where it, whether it was going to... He wasn't a whether, bank
2: robber, but it was still really good.
1: <laughs> I didn't. I, I knew when I started it, it might not <laughs> land, but um, but I don't, I don't think that's an unfair reading of what he's asking us to believe. You from don't his, think
3: it's an unfair reading. Yeah. You're in double yeah. negative land, too. We all end up there.
1: Um, I Can mean, we? it's the eye of confidence in both parties that swallows the new interpretation. Um, and so what's my point? My point is that he is, he's is asking us to buy this it 's not the hurly burly of a press conference in which you 've got to give some accommodation, but this is a thought out written down read from statement, and so that compounds the seriousness of the moment in terms of being able to trust the the president when he tells you things.
3: So can we talk about Congress for a moment and perhaps the voters? You know, the Republicans in Congress reacted in some way. They tried not to criticize Trump by name for the most part with a couple of exceptions. Was this a missed opportunity not just by them but also by the Democrats to ask for one strong response like (laughs) protect our next election? Something that, you know, is, attainable, something that we should have that matters deeply for the future. I sort of felt like everyone bumbled it as they were just, like, gawking at the spectacle.
2: Well, there was this very funny New York Times headline, which was, like, a dam broke with Republicans, and then you read the, it was a quote, (laughs) that was was a quote from one Republican, there was one Republican, Bob Corker, who was retiring from the Senate, who said, this time a dam broke, and then you're like, you read this article, and there are literally no quotes from anybody who's an active legislator saying anything actually critical of the president. And so, and your by name is a good point, because they desperately do not want to be on record saying things about him in a derogatory way. Right, so, way. you know, they yeah.
3: say Russia's but not our friend in this very banal to, way.
2: Emily, I have a a, um, a procedural question, which is, if there is a Democratic House majority, they can subpoena Trump's tax records immediately? And hmm. is that a... Can they do that and then...
3: I mean, they could certainly try, right? They have subpoena power. There'd be a huge legal fight. What would the legal fight be? It would end in
2: the Supreme Court. Yeah, exactly. What's the? I mean, it's Congress. What's? It's Congress.
3: It would be about. I mean, it's. See, I mean, the what? It would be about the president's. I'm not sure how you would invoke privilege for this because it's the tax returns that were generated before the presidency, but it does seem like the case for asking for them got stronger. And that right. was another thing I wasn't really, I don't, did I miss Schumer making a big deal about that? Or did he not talk about that with a lot of, he had like a long list. I felt like he got lost in a lot of different.
1: Well, uh, strategically you could imagine that if you're Democrats, you want to let I mean, while the other, while Republicans are, are being critical of the president, you don't want to get in their way. So
3: I guess so. Although they weren't I that not, critical.
2: They could have gotten in the way.
3: So do, you, do we think that nothing is going to change? That this is like an episode, that the poll numbers won't really be altered? Will it have an effect on the election in November?
1: Oh, God, no. No, I don't think. <laughs> no, because we're going to be, cause, because something, uh, well, I think, I mean, I do kind of believe this, this um, ripples uh, business, which is that this will now, the, the effect of all of this and the cleaning up and the not cleaning up and the reaction and all that ha- is a thing now to which and around which the president and his national security team now have to operate. Um, and I think that can cause, and also, by the way, in the previous instances with, with Russian leaders, it causes, um, it encourages adventurism on the part of the, the Russians. Um, who knows in what context that will manifest itself this time. But, um, and I think NATO certainly doesn't know what to think about you know, the individual members, by the way, when you're asked to list your foes and Europe is the first on the list, um, considering, we, I mean, that's that also is is causing some some people. People make other choices now based on this stuff. So I, I think it will matter, but it, m- it might not matter in U.S. Politi- politics.
2: So Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the Gab Fest and on other Slate podcasts. And our Slate Plus bonus segment today is going to be the Q&A from our live show here In Glenside, PA. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or, sister or friend, an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. On Friday, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Is that, am I pronouncing his name? No. No. no.
3: Rosenstein.
2: Man, I, I was like, I think it's Rosenstein. And I was sure, but then You're I was right. like, Emily's going to correct me.
1: No, it's all the other It's like I when my wife walks head. out
2: of a building, whichever direction she goes is always the, the right wrong way. So whatever is, wait, so what is the right one? What is it? Stein. Rosenstein. Rosenstein, <laughs> okay. Yeah. On Friday, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announced the indictment of 12 Russian intelligence agency, agents, GRU officers. They had hacked the DNC, the DCCC, and the personal accounts of leading Democrats, notably John Podesta, in the month leading up to the 2016 election, and distributed that hacked material to WikiLeaks and in, in other channels, perhaps to at least one congressional candidate, and possibly coordinated with people Connected to the Trump campaign, they also these these hackers also attacked election systems in 21 states. This was quickly followed by the arrest of Maria Butina or Butinia. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I haven't heard it said.
1: Rosenstein,
2: (laughs) a Russian national who seems to have posed as a gun rights activist to build connections with the NRA and with Republicans, and to have even honeypotted by offering sex to get a job within an organization she wanted to work in, and she was, she was arrested as she was apparently preparing to flee the country. So, Emily, these 12, uh, 12 GRU officers will never stand trial in the United States. They will not be extradited here. What is the point of indicting them? We will never know, and they will, we will never test these allegations in a court of law.
3: Right. I think the point of indicting them is to write... Uh, a clear narrative account of what happened, how this attack occurred as a warning to other political candidates. And frankly, to all of us, um, when I was reading the indictment last night, I thought, oh my God, please have me not be the person who like brings the spear phishing malware into the New York Times. Like, please, <laughs> please. Um, it it feels like present and kind of terrifying. I mean, essentially, like one thing went wrong through John Podessa's assistant and one miswritten email from an IT person telling him to click on that password and from there all hell broke loose like very literally and then, and then I think the second reason it's there is to warn the Russians that we have all the details we know how this operation worked and that is supposed to have some kind of deterrent effect
1: I also thought it was um, and, and in that context Going to, just looking at the timeline and the things that happened and the, and the text from, how do you pronounce it, Guccifer?
2: Guccifer, I think. Guccifer,
1: the, the one hacker in touch with WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks saying to the main hacker, uh, you know, look, we got a DNC uh, um, a convention coming up and Hillary's about to make nice with Sanders so we could really use some new dirt now, bec- now because um, we want there to be chaos and no unity among the Democrats, and basically he provided. Um, So to see the way in which, it wasn't just kind of like, oh, some hacking happened and then it kind of went out it's a rather methodical—and there were moments when, you know, I mean, having covered that con- convention, obviously, and everybody remembers, it was kind of a thing. Um, that the, um, Because it was—not only was there the existing tension between Sanders and, and Clinton, but it was exacerbated by the emails that showed that the Clinton team had been s- systematically working the system um, uh, through the DNC and through the Democratic apparatus— to um, squeeze out and marginalize Sanders, as you know, as candidates have before, but they don't get their emails printed about it. Um, so it was successful, and the places and ways in which it was successful at at important points. Just seeing it all laid out in chronological fashion was much more powerful than it had been previously for I me.
2: I mean, what's weird to me is that we basically knew all of this back in 2016. We the the people who were smarter than than I am certainly were saying, "Oh, Guccifer, 2.0 is not a Romanian, he's a Russian, that was published, it was it was Russian agents, that, that WikiLeaks is getting these leaks from Russians, that the intention is to disrupt Hillary's campaign. This was all stuff that was out there two years ago, it's just taken this long to be digested by the legal system.
1: And also to read the actual text saying saying you know, saying all of that, but explicitly... Right, it's that really... was
3: published, but we didn't know it was correct. Right. It was possible no, no, that it was And it right. felt overheated at that moment. And I remember thinking like, huh, really? Which now seems foolish.
2: So there were not any Americans indicted in this particular round of indictments. Obviously, the Mueller investigation has, has indicted others. And it didn't... I mean, clearly, Roger Stone is a freak and a malevolent character in <laughs> any by any measure. But it didn't in what was outlined in this indictment didn't show any significant coordination apparently with the Trump campaign do you think that this is we just don't know that this that other shoe is going to drop that Mueller has our that or or that really that that coordination isn't going to come up or we just don't know
3: I think we just don't know. I mean, Mueller's been very methodical, and when he does indict people, there are a lot of details, and one feels that they have done their homework and then some, and so this felt to me that he certainly didn't close any of those doors. I do think it makes sense in some ways not to have it all be in a single indictment, that there's a way in which the focus on the Russian interference and their side, that it makes sense to keep that separate from these questions of who cooperated with them and how that worked. Um, so, you know, aside from what we saw from Lucky Leaks and Roger Stone, a little bit in there, too. But I don't feel like it exonerated anyone or made it clear that people were off the hook.
1: No, and in fact, Rosenstein basically said there's more to come and don't draw any conclusions from this. I think there are two reasons to keep it limited. One is, uh, and at least this works in other intelligence um, and I suppose uh, I would imagine it works in this case too, is that you show a little bit of what you have, and because you're watching all the other players, and it's clear they've been watching Paul Manafort even long after he was indicted, and long after he knew he was going to jail, they were watching him, and he was still doing bad things. Even after
3: he even after he was, he he go was to jail. in jail, he was on that's house true. Arrest, but still, so yeah. they
1: drop it, and then they watch. They particularly did this with terrorists, and they watch everybody scurry, and then they go pick them off. Um, and so that it, it initiates activity that then gives them more more detail, and they then flip those people, um, and so they get into conversations about immunity and about basically trading information, so that they can tighten up their other indictments.
2: So, I mean, Emily, one you were talking uh, before the show about this Jack Goldsmith article, which points out that America interferes in elections all the time, or has a history of interfering in elections at various points in our time in our history. It, is what Russia is doing so bad? I mean, is it? Is this something, I mean, does this deserve to its own special counsel investigation? Or is it, should we realize that actually there's foreign interference in our elections all the time and, and we should just kind of accept that?
3: Well, I don't, so I think it is, I mean, Jack Goldsmith had, he actually mentioned a study in which someone went and tried to find all the times in which other countries have interfered with elections. And the United States seems to have done this more than Russia or other places, Uh, which is...
2: (laughs) Gold
0: medal.
3: I think the fact that we do it, it can still be very, very bad. And we can still be hypocritically... Um, very worried about Russia or anyone doing it to us. Um, I mean, Jack, I thought, was making an incredibly judicious and nuanced argument for the way in which the United States has contributed to the underlying conditions that led to this hacking. And he was pointing out that we have done nothing, in fact, the opposite, to create an, an international norm in which cyber hacking of elections is beyond the pale Um, And that, you know, we may think that we're hacking elections on behalf of the good guys, but international laws and norms don't make that distinction. Um, That's a really subjective view that we have of ourselves. It does not translate. And so I think his end point was to say that if we want this to stop happening, we need to talk more honestly about what the United States has done in the past and commit to not doing it in the future and kind of ask the world to join us. And then he also pointed out that Trump doesn't have the credibility to do that right now, that if he stood up and tried to make that argument, it would look like one more craven um, well, act of obsequiousness toward the Russians, Well, which he, is a he, problem.
1: He, you remember several months ago where he had a pull-aside with, with President Putin and he's came out of that and said, I talked to the Russian president about a a joint task force on cyber
2: terrorism. Yes, and every law enforcement official
3: was like, you gotta be kidding, because, right.
4: Uh,
2: Yeah. John, John, you're a student of Washington and of the characters who have floated through Washington. Maria Butina, this uh, 29-year-old Russian who...
3: With very red hair.
2: Extreme, bad week for redheads, bad week for redheads. But she is a... Just a fantastic character. Her, she really seems to have gotten into it. She, have you guys seen the, the Sasha Baron Cohen show where Sasha Baron Cohen plays this it goes as this Israeli colonel in Mossad who's bringing this program called Kinder Guardians to train four and five year olds in, in using guns, and he gets all these Republican politicians and, and activists to endorse this program and it's amazing but she's like a real life version of this i mean she really t- very cannily played people's desires to support gun rights to you know the kind of christian nationalism but what, what do you what do you make of her well I,
1: we don't ever know meet exactly her along the way? what no i don't no? think i've i don't, i do not think i've met her um,
3: i just feel like she was traveling in circles i mean
1: you could have my circles are very small um uh, well, she's extraordinary—an extraordinary figure. I'm trying to think of anyone other. Anna Chenault is the closest thing I can think of during the uh, Johnson administration. She was uh, she was sort of helping um, uh, Nixon get elected. Um, there's a. And there's a fair amount of evidence, including um, by basically slowing the peace talks in Vietnam. The idea was that if the peace talks were too productive, that would help Humphrey and Humphrey would beat Nixon and that Anna Chenault. But there was a little bit of Anna Chenault was kind of over broasting about what she was doing. On the other hand, there are now Jack Farrell's book on Nixon has. Um, new evidence from Haldeman's diaries and from Nixon suggesting they actually were using Anna Chenault to slow down the peace talks. So that was the first figure that came to mind, but she was much more kind of involved. And this um, seems to be, uh, uh, Butina seems to be kind of more of a peripheral figure, but it does hint at um, maybe a breadth of a Russian operation going through the NRA to to be involved in the, um, in the in the American election in a way that Suggest just uh, that it's more than just maybe even what the U.S. has done in other elections. That It was much more robust.
3: Is it surprising that conservative groups turn out to be so open to the idea of in- enhancing the status and influence of the Russians? I-, I feel as, you know, someone who grew up in the time of Ronald Reagan calling Russia the evil empire, it's kind of scrambling my brain how receptive people have turned out Well, you
1: to be. don't even have to go all the way back to Reagan. You can... Uh, just well, and nominee. also, this is, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the Soviet Union was different than the Russian Federation, except that the, the president of the Russian Federation says the greatest, um, not mistake in history, but the, the worst thing that ever happened in history was the breakup of the Soviet Union. So it tends to be on Team USSR. Um, but the, the, uh, the, um, the other thing that's extraordinary is that the last Republican nominee of the Republican Party said that Russia was America's number one geopolitical foe. So you don't even have to go all the way back to Reagan.
2: I do think there's this curious alliance among American evangelicals and Russian Christian nationalists because they share interests. There's kind of an anti-LGBTQ agenda that they share, and a and a kind of infatuation with authoritarianism and a, and a like a, a strongman complex. And that, Putin that, as a heroic uh, figure. Yeah, and, they, and I think it. it trends through both groups. And so I think she she came in through two really good doors. One is every NRA activist wants to know that that other countries want more guns. That is the thing that that they want to know that people want gun rights everywhere. And this kind of Christian piece of it too. I mean, she she made inroads at the National Prayer Breakfast. So I think that that helped get rid of the red scare part of it.
3: Now, is her indictment going to lead to indictment of Americans? It just seems hard to imagine that nobody really did anything wrong while she was messing around with them. We'll see.
2: I don't know. We'll see. Anything else to add on this topic?
4: No. (laughs) Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at choppacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: There are an incredible number of potential Democratic candidates for president in 2020. And weirdly, none of them come from Pennsylvania. So. (laughs) Yet. So the. The top at the top, I think you have a, a tier of Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kristen Gillibrand, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. Maybe there's a second tier that might have John Hickenlooper, Sherrod Brown, Eric Garcetti, Mitch Landrew, uh, maybe Terry McAuliffe, um, the sort of the governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, Andrew Cuomo, Deval Patrick, Eric Holder, <laughs> Jeff Merkley from Oregon. And then there are the kind of charismatic long shots, or maybe not so charismatic long shots of Oprah Winfrey or Howard Schultz of Starbucks or, be still my heart, Mike Bloomberg. Um, so the party, John, has a bunch of choices like here, a huge, huge choices. They can, go, go, can they make, can make the campaign about Trump or not. They can run for the base and re- really run a super progressive activate people campaign or try to run more, a more centrist, traditional democratic campaign. You can run a new face, or you can run an old-timer. You can run a white guy, like a safe... Let's run another safe white guy. Don't want to not run a white guy. Or, like, say, well, actually, our party is made up of women and African-Americans and Hispanics, so let's, let's make sure we represent that. Um, we can run a charismatic populist, or we can run sort of a more sober, wonk person. Do you, how do you think the... Is, is that decision going to be made basically by the voters and it's like a throw up throw everything in the air and we'll see what happens or do you think there's going to be a kind of considered process there
1: <laughs> not did it's they not just going make to be the latter
3: less powerful it's not, like not going to be the latter right did What's they on? just take away power from the superdelegates which would make it more of a free for all
1: Yes, although they're they're possibly taking well i think it all gets decided next month um, but they're also changing to I think the number of caucuses may go down
2: from like 14 to 7. Right. David doesn't care, yeah, but come, he does care
1: up. But you should care because caucuses I care,
2: but like it's getting a little that's a little 2019. We're 2018. I want to I want a big, big picture.
3: picture No counting caucuses
1: Sorry, I don't I don't get to talk about the caucuses <laughs> um, So I there's no way there, It's never organized of course. It's not because I mean a it never is even in the republican party when people say well the republicans stand in you know fall in line and the democrats fall in love the republicans didn't stand in have like falling in line either obviously donald trump is the, the example of that but even even others um uh so i think what's going to be fascinating just at the most broadest 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 level is whether the changing um i mean donald trump has changed all norms of campaigning and governing and so i'm we're going to hear every 10 minutes in the Democratic race uh, when a candidate is held to some kind of standard, whether it's, well, they don't have any experience in Washington, or they don't have any foreign policy experience, or they don't have any—anytime anybody tries to use a traditional measurement on a candidate to say they're not up to the task— somebody will, with some justification, say, well, what, what do you mean? There's like, there are no norms anymore. And why is, the, why is this standard you're using viable? Because none of the standards are viable because Donald Trump fooled everybody um, who, all the smart people who thought he wasn't going to be able to get, get elected. Um, so, so how will, what, the, the standard's going to be massively floating. Also, because you have so many people, there's going to be a process where it's going to be, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, and then it's going to be a panic because it's going to be, well, what if we all, you know, massacre each other and you, you end up having a weakened candidate who doesn't have much support. Also other fascinating things like you're an activist in the democratic party. You really want to get involved because you believe in the ideas of the democratic party and and you don't like the incumbent president. So where do you make your choice in that long list? Who inspires you? And you know, people got inspired by John Edwards and it didn't work, you know, and, and they were on the Edwards campaign and they thought, oh gee, I wish I were on the Obama campaign. So you don't want to make that choice early. Of course, if you don't make the choice early, then you don't get a chance to be in on the ground floor of an exciting and interesting campaign. Um, so there's going to, I think the, 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 the answer to your question is that we, it's never organized, but I think in a particular, particularly in this case, I don't think it's going to be, I think it's gonna be less organized than normal.
2: Emily, you have uh, written about some of these people, and you've paid a lot of attention to to some of them. Do you, is there anybody in that long list who you think they really have a good head start? There, there's reason to think that they can emerge strong. I mean, I think Sand—I mean, Sanders, I guess, gets a starts at the 10-yard the line. Or the yeah,
3: and I feel guilty because I dismissed him through the entire last election, so I sort of feel obligated to give him his due this time. Yes, yes, I know. Blame. That's fine. I was wrong, as I am about so many things. Um, so I, I'm interested in that because he, you know, is such an outsider figure, um, but he really, you know, people feel really passionate about him, and he does have a capacity on the populist front to challenge Trump in a way that maybe Warren Elizabeth Warren also has but That's, I think Sanders brings it in a way that um probably nobody else does so I'm I'm interested in watching that um
1: But it's not it's not just going to be you know he's not just going to be competing with Elizabeth Warren No Kamala sure Harris not. will be competing with him for Foreign that worker. and you know there will be others who will be going for the kind of coming left inward as opposed to so it is going to be a much different situation for him.
3: Right. I mean, He's also thing, four years older. I'm curious about, you know, when we have talked, when people, and I, I think we've done this too, talk about the kind of spectrum from Connor Lamb to Stacey Abrams in Georgia, um, there is this sense that these are, this is like a, but they're, they're, they talk about the same things actually. Their identities are different. The way they're positioned therefore, I think especially by the press is different. But when you look at their messaging on healthcare, on jobs, on what their priorities are, it's actually remarkably similar. And so in some ways I think the big challenge for the Democrats is to, transcend the appearance that this is an identity politics kind of choice, and just pick the best candidate who makes their message really come across, as opposed to getting really caught up in a sort of constricting, paralyzed way about what the person looks like. And the problem, right? do you yeah. think
1: prom is the problem is that... Primaries incur, tend to encourage Absolutely. identity politics. So you have a systemic... I mean, it's the same on the right, it happens in terms of everybody tries to be more religiously conservative to win over that block. So to win over the blocks in primaries, you tend to emphasize those things.
2: Do you think, John, do you think like the kind of uh, safe hands, old white guy, which somebody like a Hickenlooper or a, a slightly bipartisan that a Bloomberg, a Hitler, Hickenlooper, maybe a Biden uh, could represent, do you think that that can carry through a democratic primary process these days.
1: Well, I think you, so the question is whether the democratic party becomes, and again, this, uh, this uh, implicit in this response is the assertion that there's some controlling, um, like idea, <laughs> which there isn't. I mean, the there is a political science idea that the, the party decides kind of at this kind of sub level. I don't think, I mean this certainly wasn't the case in the, in the, on the Republican side. Um, And so the question is whether that theory still exists anymore. And you've got so many candidates, I don't see how the party could decide. The idea is, the idea the party decides is basically all the money and endorsements go to one person. That this all happens before the voters get a chance. I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to happen. But what I do wonder is the extent to which people are transactional, which is people feel very strongly about the sitting president. That will be shaped and changed by 2018. If it's a Democrats control the House, that's, that will shape and change people's views uh, in terms of the electoral process as a way to rebut the incumbent. And then secondarily, what message will people get from 2018? Will they misread individual results in little districts that are outliers or will they take a general national message? So we'll have to sort through all that. But in answer to your question, you could imagine a situation which people get highly transactional and say, we need somebody who can take on and go toe to toe with uh, the incumbent president who's going to be, you know, if he brought the people who accused the spouse of the nominee of the previous party to the second debate, Donald Trump uh, is very tough as a candidate. And so the candidate you described, David, if that candidate can check the box of being able to go toe-to-toe with the president and can articulate what the central democratic message is, whatever that may be, and, and do it in a way that sounds actually Good, strong, and passionate. Then they, then, then you might have a. Then you might have a candidate. But I think otherwise. I think people are looking for freshness and difference, and
2: a white male candidate. Yeah.
3: Right. White male candidate
2: is not freshness and different. I I sense that Democrats are going to make a mistake in 2020, not in who they choose, because who the hell knows? But that, as usual, they're going to overweight the presidency. And one of the things that we see that's, I think, as a for Democrats in 2018 is this marvelous surge of candidates at every level, at state legislative level, at city council level, at every congressional district. And that's been great, and it clearly is going to have a huge impact, and especially going into a 2020 census and a 2020 reapportionment to get back, for Democrats to get back control of state legislatures is going to be hugely important. And Democrats get so worked up about the presidency, and Trump is going to so dominate... This question of Trump is going to dominate the 2020 campaign and and cast this huge shadow over it. I hope the Democrats do not forget that they, that really the game's got to be at the lower level. That they that they've they've so screwed themselves over the past 20 or 30 years. And and it in a way in a way it would be it would be Democrats would be better off losing the presidency in 2020. But but taking but taking a sweep at at local and and the congressional level then they would be did, at the, with the reverse happening till
3: 2024
1: that's a fair, But fine don't plan. you think that that's I, I I wonder somebody earlier was asking for hope I think liberals can find hope in the fact that I think that lesson is now
2: like tattooed on, and I in think 2018, yeah, and they're gonna, yes, but, but does that last through 2020? But, does that last in the way on the oh, we won in 2018, yeah? I don't yeah,
1: know. I feel like the same way conservatives reacted to the liberalism of the 60s and the 70s, I, th- I feel like you hear that from them from liberals, uh, now in reaction to what's happening. also
3: there's a way in which it's all connected in a virtuous cycle way, right? Whereas if you improve your voter registration efforts and your turnout machine, that yields benefits for everybody up and down the ticket. And that the energy that goes into that kind of organizing is universal.
2: Um, one of the striking things to me about the list of this incredibly long list of potential presidential candidates is that I don't think there's a Latino or Latina candidate on there. And the Democrats don't have, I think, I mean, they're the Castros who... We always guess, bring up the Castros. But the solid. Castros seem to be a, a pipe dream. Doesn't that seem like a, a, something that Democrats need to work on?
3: Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, so tell me, Emily, can Mike Bloomberg be president? Although, you know what, actually, oh.
1: <laughs> can I just say, that, you know, there was the Pew polling about the Hispanic vote after the last election in which, um, depending on how, who you believe, Trump did as well or better than Mitt Romney with Hispanics, um, that the Democratic vote, a lot of people believed in, in 16 that, that Hispanic voters would turn out because, you know, listen to the things that Donald Trump has said, including from the minute he um, announced his candidacy, and that that was not as much of a motivator of voters. Um, now, perhaps that's different now, but that the, that the driving forces for... Latino voters were, you know, healthcare, education, the, the bread and butter issues. Um, so I guess the identity politics piece may not be as important as the, as the actually, what is this party, who do these people, what do they stand for?
2: So, John, um, you, you can't possibly guess who's going to emerge, but to tell us, give us a uh, kind of predictive guide. What are the guideposts? What are we going to look for so that we'll see it signals, think that it be a, signals that signals that somebody is getting two traction?
1: Thing, two things we should look for is older than thirty five, <laughs> natural born citizen, a citizen of the United States. Uh, I have no, I have, I have, no idea. I have, I have no idea. I think that we. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about enough um, is the outsider, not Washington, not. Um, so that's Bloomberg Schultz. I think the, I think the Oprah thing is not going to happen. But um, the but what thing is not going to happen? I don't think uh-huh. Oprah as a candidate is going to happen. But I think um, blo- the the Bloomberg um, your fantasy of Mike Bloomberg uh, may come to pass. Can I tell and you then- about my Here's fantasy of Mike Bloomberg? Yes, you it are. begins.
2: There's a canopy bed. Uh, there's everyone gets a canopy bed. Um, the
3: case. The case for Mike Bloomberg is the case for is the lesson from Italy, right? That when you have a kind of um, demagogic figure, you want to bring in something real, someone really serious and policy minded and kind of phlegmatic almost to be an antidote, and to not have it be a personality charisma driven election at all. I feel like Mike Bloomberg could perform very well on that particular right. front
2: right yeah uh, unfortunately that's not really what democratic voters want no. right now no, they're fired up you. maybe yeah. you're not yeah the
1: um yeah leon panetta said uh a couple of months ago he was like the next president is going to be very very boring i mean the idea well, being that there would be but uh, but you know prime this well, is that's the challenge for the want, democratic but- party they might per,
3: want it, but they're not going to pick it in the, that it in the primary. That person doesn't make it through the Democratic
1: primary. Yeah, and by the way, that's what that's what the incumbent president is hoping for. I mean, he's, he's hoping, hoping for boring. He's hoping, he's hoping, hoping the, for exciting. No. He's, he's hoping, hoping for... that they. He's hoping the Democratic primary is incredibly exciting, and that the the most that the base of the Democratic Party's favorite candidate gets the nomination. But hopefully, you know, um, and then he'll uh, run against that person.
2: I didn't even understand what you just said. said Trump
3: wants it to be a race about charisma and personality and fireworks and not about sober side's policy, correct? Good translation. Yes,
2: thank you for translating that. So let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having your... uh, You seem to not be able to have a beer in this state. We tried to get beer. We couldn't find any. So when you're having your your wine or whatever it is that you you all drink here on your porch. Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about?
3: So I I should have come up with a hopeful cocktail chatter, but instead I came up with a source of indignation. Um, So the Trump administration announced this week that they're going to end this requirement that nonprofits um, involved in some way in political activity, um, or actually just big nonprofits, disclose the names of donors that give more than $5,000 to the IRS. And I am so frustrated by this. It turns out this information was not public, so it's not as if we've gone from having some easily accessible um, set of data to having um, none, but but the IRS did collect this information, and so the fact that you know major donors on both the left and the right were um, investing in particular groups that then could have different kinds of involvement in politics was something that allowed the IRS to have some semblance of monitoring what a nonprofit organization is. We are basically moving more and more into a world where 501c3s, that's the tax code name for nonprofits, can kind of do anything they want. And the idea of these being charitable organizations that were not involved in political activity, there is so much less reason for people to really feel bound by those rules. The IRS already isn't, was barely auditing nonprofits. And now it's not even going to know who the major donors are.
2: Is this a basically a response to the Obama era fake? Yeah, the notion that the IRS
3: had gone after political groups. And you know what is so frustrating to me about that is, like, the IRS, okay, obviously the IRS should be nonpartisan and even-handed, but assuming it was, and in fact the facts show that it did go on both sides of the aisle, it should care more about groups involved in politics. Those are exactly the groups that we should want to know what they are doing, and the IRS should make sure that they stay in bounds on both sides of the aisle. And I will say one more thing before I... Um, stop expressing indignation i 've been doing a lot of reporting for my book about the different races across the country, including in Philadelphia, where reform minded candidates have won for district attorney, and a lot of national money came in right so um George Soros has been a contributor, not just Soros. There's also money coming in from other groups, too. And it is not easy to figure out, as it is, because they not only give direct donations, they also create PACs. You end up having to do quite a lot of research to figure it out. And even when they are being open and scrupulous in dividing their political um, Activity, which is in this other 501c4 pot, from their regular nonprofit activity, it's confusing. So the notion that the IRS isn't even going to know who these donors are, it just, yeah, it, it's really, really frustrating to watch these kinds of moves get made. This is the power of the executive branch.
2: John, what is your
1: chatter? Um, so, I, uh, w- first thing is I want to recommend Spotting, which is the W. Diggs' new um, movie about growing up in Oakland. It's really great. You saw a movie? Yeah, I have. Ha- in real time? I, I, I have to. If we interviewed him this morning on the show. That's it's part awesome. Of, it's part of, uh, yeah, no, it's a great part of the new job. Um, uh, it's, no, it's a great film. It's, uh, well, anyway, I won't ruin it by saying why it's great, but it's great. Okay. So now, uh, my chatter, so I was, I've already talked about Kennedy and Khrushchev um, for the Whistle Stop, which is everyone's second favorite podcast here. Um, Anyway, for those of you who haven't already committed it to memory, I was struck by the first joke that Khrushchev makes to Kennedy when they meet, meet is he basically, he says, I helped you get elected. Um... Which is kind of amazing. The Russians had the U- U-2 spy plane uh, pilot, um, uh, Francis Gary Powers, and they didn't release him until after Kennedy won. If they'd released him earlier, Nixon could have said, uh, look, we can deal with the Russians and therefore elect me. So um, Russian presidents and election uh, interference were uh, as a um, time-honored thing. Yeah, the second thing is that when they talked... Um, There's a huge section of time when they talked and it was just them and translators um, with nobody else in the uh, with the two of them. Um, That's not to say that the parallel obviously Kennedy had a different uh, he was on a different mission in Vienna than than uh, President Trump was with in Helsinki. But this is this thing I discovered, which I did not know, which is that while Kennedy was off meeting with Khrushchev, his brother was in the frequent company of a Russian spy whose name I'd never heard of this guy before is um, a Georgie. Bolshakov. So we don't have a picture of him, but he was apparently a very gregarious, hard drinking, blue eyed, sort of wispy haired bon vivant um, who had a central. Like ca- you. Yes.
4: <laughs>
3: wispy? Wispy? Right.
1: What do you mean? It, you're right. It's like a Kaiser Soze moment. Um, <laughs> so, and apparently he had a central casting Rus- Russian accent, um, and he was friends with. with the whole Kennedy circle. And he he, um, was the the, uh, editor of a glossy English magazine about Russian life, which I don't know what that included. I guess uh, recipes for borscht and uh, pictures of Serbian models with only 12 layers of clothing. Um, Anyway, undercover, he was... A GRU agent, so we, are, we all now know about the GRU because it's behind these 12, uh, the 12 who were indicted in the Mueller, and GRU is, is accused of um, uh, poisoning Sergei Skripal in England. But they didn't used to be, used to be the KGB and the GRU, which is the military intelligence, was not that big a thing. Anyway, it was a big thing back then. Kennedy would regularly meet with him. When he first met with him, how did he meet this Russian spy? He was introduced to him by a journalist who somehow didn't let this leak. And they go on their first walk, the two of them, Robert Kennedy, the brother of the president, who's the attorney general. So this would be like having Jeff Sessions meet with a Russian spy. Um, Never. um, That couldn't happen. they They go on a walk down the mall... And it starts, they go and they sit in the grass and have a conversation about how they're gonna improve U.S.-Russian relations. It starts to rain. Kennedy jokes, if a bolt of lightning kills me, the papers will report a Russian spy killed the president's brother. It could trigger a war. Let's get away from here. So the two of them run briskly back in the rain. Um, And they also like pina coladas, but that's a different part of the story. Anyway, they get back to the attorney general's office. They're soaking wet, so they take their shirts off. They're in their shirt sleeves talking about, anyway, this is the basis for the beginning of this meeting. The Russians in the United States didn't talk because of the U-2 spy incident. So when Kennedy gets elected, there's a total freeze. This meeting with the Russian spy gets the Vienna thing kicked off, but it gets better, and I'm about to shut up. But the relationship continues, and then during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when you know people were worried about the annihilation of the mainland, um, it turns out um, that, RFK, that the Robert Kennedy and Bolshakov have a conversation in which Kennedy says, basically, look, if we take the missiles out of Turkey, will you guys get them out of Cuba, which becomes the basis for the, for the solution to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the spy you didn't know who's responsible
2: for our safety and security. All right. So I have a listener chatter first before my chatter. So we've been collecting from you uh, great, your own cocktail chatters, things that you are, are talking about at your cocktail parties, uh, great works of culture, or movies or songs or historical episodes or articles that you found wonderful or horrifying or strange. And we are asking you to tweet at us at at Slate gabfest. We got a great set of them this week. And I want to briefly mention Meg Smith's chatter. So Meg told us about a story I didn't know about, which is a Republican um, running for Senate in Wisconsin, a guy named uh, Kevin Nicholson. And there's a, some really interesting stories about him. So Kevin comes from a Democratic family, and a uh, very, very liberal family in Wisconsin. He uh, became a Christian, he became a Marine, and he he became quite conservative and now he's running to defeat Tammy Baldwin and it turns out that his parents have now maxed out donations to Tammy Baldwin (laughs) and he wrote he wrote a really passionate piece about you know I'm my parents are my parents are furious at me and they're backing my opponent and it's about this sort of this family being riven in public and it's really quite uh, it's very sad I mean you feel like that, that shouldn't be how it turns out. I think I feel bad for the guy um, that, he, that, he, that his parents are, are turning on him like that. So Meg Smith's chatter, check that out. My chatter. Um, so Vladimir Putin has given gifts to Donald Trump. Notably, he gave him the Oval Office. But he also, this week, gave him a soccer ball at the Helsinki Summit. And President Trump seemed pretty pleased to get that soccer ball. And so it got me thinking about gifts to presidents. And I'm I checked with John, and apparently John has not chattered about this incredibly. Uh, but it, it turns out that gifts to presidents are a surprisingly complicated subject because uh, when leaders of foreign countries are meeting, they're constantly giving each other gifts. And, and in order to prevent graft, although maybe, maybe we've gotten rid of that, that rule, in order to prevent graft, <laughs> presidents are no longer allowed to keep Gifts that are valued over $375. The Emoluments
3: Clause.
2: Yes. So there's a protocol gift unit in the State Department that takes any gift that the president's given over $375 and passes it on to the National Archives. Or actually, it goes to the National Archives first. The National Archives estimates its value and then decides whether the president can keep it. And if he can't keep it, it can potentially go to his uh, library after he retires. Um, so... What if uh, they give him a library? Hmm good question. That's the Clinton test. Uh, So (laughs) the Atlantic and foreign policy, by the way, is a source of of this. Thank you. So I want to run through some highlights. So President Obama got a $90,000 jewel-encrusted sword from the Saudis. He also got a Malaysian jewel-encrusted sword and an Algerian jewel-encrusted dagger.
3: Are they all still at the National Archives? Where
2: are they? they the they're bro. probably still at the like National Archives. Somewhere. Yeah, I, don't, I think there's a big box in the basement somewhere. So, the, although I hope the next one is not in the box in the basement, but the Bulgarian president gave George W. Bush a puppy.
1: And, and oh, sorry to interrupt, they, they kept the puppy in the situation room for like a day because it was, it was given in this really weird way. Is that, yeah. Is that public? Yeah, and, they, oh. well, they,
2: and so it was valued at more than $375, so he couldn't keep it, so he gave it to a friend in Maryland. Yeah. So.
1: But this when pup- he first got it, I, I swear I think it's true that they like housed it for whatever, mm-hmm. a half an hour or an hour in the situation room. I mean, Lord knows, it could have launched a war.
2: If, they, if it was the Russians, they would have put a little camera in it. So the Azerbaijani president, I wish we had a picture, gave the Clintons the ugliest carpet ever made because it had huge, it was a nice carpet, but then it had huge woven in Bill and Hillary Clintons on the carpet. It's, it's monstrous. The uh, president of Indonesia gave George H.W. Bush a Komodo dragon, which ended up at the Cincinnati Zoo. The Sultan of Brunei, who was at the time the richest person in the world, gave a tea infuser infuser in the shape of a penguin. That is like, that is really cheap.
3: But you're not going to have another tea. Also, Brunei
2: does not have penguins.
3: But you're not going to have another one. Like Uh, that is something there's not, it's not like your collection of penguin shaped tea Plus
1: it was all that was available at the airport gift shop.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was like he was like, oh shit! I <laughs> yeah. forgot to bring
1: it. The snow globe of the Capitol will not work. <laughs> uh,
2: Teddy Roosevelt got a zebra and a lion. Uh, this he one he promptly I re- shot. Yeah. <laughs> I really, this one I, I really like. I don't know if you know this one, John. George W. Bush got from Argentina, the Argentina's president, three hundred pounds of raw lamb, <laughs> which I hope is not Cook at the out. national
3: barbecue time. Uh,
2: yeah. Probably the best gift was the Queen Victoria gave Rutherford B. Hayes the Resolute desk. Oh, yeah. So this desk made from the wood of the HMS Resolute, which was a ship that sank while trying to go retrieve the uh, failed Canadian Arctic expedition. Which is
1: in the Oval Office as we speak?
2: Yes, it is in the Oval Office a very favorite. When you give the desk best gift,
3: you get to stay in the Oval Office. So well, that forever. was that was
2: pre emolument Clause, I guess. And actually, the my favorite.
4: What do you mean pre-Emoluments? All oh, right, I guess there's nothing. There's nothing
2: <laughs> pre. Yeah, <laughs> pre-Emoluments Clause. She
1: was. We were her yeah. subjects. <laughs> a little constitutional humor. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs>
2: And the fi- just the final one, which again, John, you'll appreciate because it's a Lyndon Johnson story, which is that he was given a Burberry coat by the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and he tried it on and it didn't fit, so he like, had his aide race out and tell him to bring it back in the right damn size. <laughs> <laughs> so, I like that.
1: Well, no, you're not going to go into the Hager pants thing, but... <laughs> What? Johnson calls up Mr. Anyway, we, anybody who's listening to the show you've heard David do this a thousand times but just go on YouTube and look up LBJ and Hager Pants and it
2: will reward the discovery it is one of the greatest clips of a president ever that is our show for today The Political Gap Fest is produced today by Danielle Hewitt and Jason DeLeon our researcher is Izzy Road, our live show was put together by Faith Smith So, capably, thank you to the Keswick Theater for your hospitality. And to you, the good people of Pennsylvania, we will be back here soon. Please follow us on Twitter at At SlateGabFest For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with you next week.